It's long been said that children are our most valuable resource. Children are our future. And today's children are tomorrow's leaders. All true statements. But children are also among our most vulnerable populations. Data gathered from back in 2019 showed that over 5,600 North Carolina children were found to be victims of neglect, physical, or sexual abuse. The good news is there is a plethora of agencies and dedicated people working diligently to make that number a downward trend and to provide resources for child victims. One of those people is our guest for podcast episodes this entire month as April is dedicated Child Advocacy Month. Whitney Bellish is the Child Abuse Resource Prosecutor with the North Carolina Conference of District Attorneys. In that capacity, she serves as a resource to assist prosecutors across the state by providing training in the prosecution of cases involving abuses of children. She serves as a resource for law enforcement, social service workers, and other allied professionals. Quentin, um, turn around, I was driving down Quentin, I'm turning around to see if I can find him again. This is at Clover, subject to 1074, Electronic Identity Awareness. NCJA 1014. Whitney Bellich, welcome back to this fourth and final episode of our podcast as we talk about child abuse and neglect and maltreatment and all the kind of sometimes ugly words that go along with that. Thank you so much for being a part of it once again. Thanks for having me. As we go to this final episode, just a quick look back for those of you that may not have uh, clicked on all three of our episodes. First, we talk about how the North Carolina Conference of District Attorneys can help law enforcement and some of the resources that are provided to law enforcement through child advocacy centers in North Carolina and resources that law enforcement can call on. In our second episode, we really got into the investigative side where uh, Whitney just did an excellent job of describing some of the investigative processes and some of the do's and don'ts. And if you haven't heard that episode, I strongly encourage you, whether you are a uniform guy who's going to be the first one to respond, or if you are a veteran criminal investigator, that is an episode that you'll certainly want to listen to as, as Whitney described some of the steps and some of the do's and don'ts in walking through child abuse and neglect cases. In episode three, we talked about the reporting requirements for child abuse in North Carolina and be aware that there are some new law enforcement reporting requirements. And today, I just kind of want to spend some time with Whitney to talk about dispelling some of the myths around child abuse. As law enforcement officers, we know it is a very complicated reporting, information gathering, investigative, and from a prosecution standpoint, when you roll all those things into one, it usually ends up being described as one word, quite complicated. So Whitney, as we begin this fourth episode and our final episode, let's talk about some of the common myths around child abuse. What are those? Well, unfortunately, there are a lot of myths about child abuse, and they come to us from a lot of different sources, and we probably have all heard versions of them or had them somewhere deep-seated in our mind for a long time. 
And so the reason it's important that we know about these and that we address these and we sort of look inside ourselves to make sure that we aren't buying into these or perpetuating them, because number one, it can impact the way that we deal with the people we come in contact with in the justice system. It can impact how we look at cases, how we assess uh, credibility, how we assess cases, whether they're good or bad or strong or weak. And sometimes we may not even realize that we're doing that, that we are discounting things or leaning towards one version of a story or another. We may not even realize that we have bought into these myths. And the other reason it's important like for prosecutors is because a lot of times these myths are held by judges and juries that we are going to be asking to make decisions on our cases. And so we want to make sure that we know kind of what's in their mind so that we can work to dispel those myths and get to the heart of what really happened in that particular case. So probably... The genesis of a lot of what we deal with now in child abuse, some of those first myths, you know, there wasn't a whole lot of talk about child abuse before the 60s. You know, it was sort of thought as something that you dealt with internally, you dealt with in your house, that it wasn't really going on very much. And we, of course, know, unfortunately, that that is not true. There's, unfortunately, a lot of child abuse that goes on, and a lot of it goes on in the home. So what we started with, as far as the big myths go, that we've been working to go against and to disprove things like the satanic panic and stranger danger. You know, those are things that people who were growing up in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s were hearing a lot about, well, child abuse is happening, but it's happening from them, from these other people. It's happening from these Satanists and they get kids and they, you know, do these terrible things. That's who's abusing kids. Or it's strangers, you know, be careful of that, that man in the white van who's going to offer you candy that's who you should really be careful of. And the dangers of those myths is that that's not really who's abusing children. The idea that there are satanic cults out there or the idea that there are guys walking around in vans preying upon children. Of course, are there cases where that's happened? Sure. But is that the common group of people who are abusing kids? No. Unfortunately, what we know now is that the most common group of people who abuse children are their parents and their caregivers. And so we don't want to believe that. Those of us who are parents, the last thing that we can ever understand or would want to believe about people and their own children is that anyone would hurt their own child intentionally or would be uh, involved in sexual abuse of their own child intentionally. But what we know now is that that is the most common situation that children find themselves in. And so we have to work very hard within ourselves and within the system to help people understand that when we are looking at a parent who seems very loving, who is a parent, we are not always looking at the protector of that child. Unfortunately, a lot of times we are looking at the person who hurt that child. And so we have to make sure that we don't just by default decide, oh, he seems like he loves his son, so I'm sure he didn't do anything. That may be true. And of course, we want to give people the benefit of the doubt. People are innocent until they are proven guilty. But as investigators and as people who look into these, we have to keep in mind the fact that the stranger danger is not what we're worried about. The the other, unfortunately, is not usually the one that's the perpetrator of this abuse. A lot of times the people who are closest to your children, you don't need to be worried about that man in the white van. You need to be worried about Uncle Larry or you need to be worried about Coach Steve. Because these are the people who are most likely, they have access to children, and they are the most likely to be the perpetrators of abuse against children. Well, and that leads me into this question from a law enforcement standpoint. And I don't, certainly don't 
mean to make light of this, but when I was a puppy, there was a bayberry bush in front of our house, and it used to be cut off into little three-foot branches, commonly known as a switch, and it got used to take corrective action. Mm -hmm. So it brings me to ask the question, what's the difference and, and where's that line drawn between discipline and abuse? That's a really good question. Um, and it is something that comes up so often in child abuse investigations and in child abuse reports. And a, a lot of people feel very uncomfortable making that distinction. But it's very important that people who investigate crime and people who have interactions with children and are tasked with sort of trying to observe ch potential child abuse, that they know where that line is. Unfortunately, it's not an extremely clear line. It really is sort of a case-by-case -case basis. In North Carolina, we still recognize that physical discipline is allowed under the law. There is an allowance for that. And so are there situations in which a parent can discipline a child in a physical way and that will be legal and will not be abuse? Yes, there are. So the general distinction, the way that, that the case law has come out over time here in North Carolina about how to make that determination, whether something is legitimate discipline or whether it is abuse, there's a few questions that we ask to make that determination. And so one of the first is, did it leave lasting injury, lasting marks? So something that, you know, is a spanking that just leaves the skin red, but that fades, then that's probably going to be considered to be discipline when it comes to just purely making a, a assessment based on the injury. Something that leaves a scar, something that leaves a long lasting bruise. I mean, we have cases where somebody says, well, I was just spanking them, but they spanked them so hard that the blue from their blue jeans that they were wearing is now dyed their skin or they can't sit down for two days, that sort of thing. That is going to be a much more serious injury and that is going to lean towards abuse. And so that's one thing that we look for is how serious are the injuries when we make that determination. Another thing that we look at to make that determination is was the quote unquote discipline, was the physical action done out of anger? There's a difference between he spilled juice on my Xbox and I wanted to make sure he knew not to do that. And so I spanked him. Then he spilled juice on my Xbox and I was pissed. And so I beat the crap out of him. Doing something out of anger is not discipline. It is, like you said, when you have to walk to the switch bush and pick out your own switch and bring it back, that's not something that is generally get being done because I'm mad at you. I, that's being done because I'm trying to teach you a lesson. And so that really is what discipline is. And injuries that are inflicted because we're angry at the person, that's not discipline. That's abuse. And then the last thing is that it's not done in some sort of inappropriate way. So these are situations where people will say, well, I wanted to teach them not to touch the hot stove. So I held their hand on the, the eye that was on and burnt their hand. Whether that's done out of anger or to teach a lesson is irrelevant because that's an inappropriate way to discipline your child, inflict serious injury or inflict injury on your child. We'll have people say, well, I wanted to teach them a lesson. So I dunked them in in scalding hot water. Well, again, doesn't matter if you intended that as discipline or not. That's an inappropriate method of discipline. And so we don't allow that. So those are the three main questions that we ask in order to determine whether something is done through discipline or done as abuse. And usually a discipline is a very common 
excuse for abuse. And that's not to say that there isn't legitimate discipline going on. But a lot of people will get really angry at their child. And then when they're caught because that child goes to school and can't sit at their desk because they have such severe bruising on their bottom, then they go to the parent. The parent says, well, I was just disciplining them. So we have to be sure that we don't just let that be an excuse for these serious injuries and these long lasting impacts that we see on children. It's not a magic word. You don't get to just say discipline and all of a sudden everybody throws their hands up and, and backs away. We shouldn't be doing that. There is legitimate discipline, but there is also a lot of illegitimate discipline out there. And we shouldn't just let people say that word and we all run away in fear because that is not an excuse for everything. In fact, it's not an excuse for a lot of the abuse that we see in kids. Well, I know some of our older listeners will remember the time and I know you'll find this hard to believe, but there was a time in my life, particularly around the middle school years, where the paddle was the effective corrective action tool. And over a period of time, the public schools phased out corporal punishment. And I think it's probably safe to assume for the very reasons that you are talking about, that corporal punishment was addressed most of the time, immediately, as as the offense had occurred, within about 30 seconds, somebody was pulling a piece of wood out of a desk or a file cabinet or wherever it may be, and it was being used. And I know that there was a tremendous amount of discussion regarding corporal punishment in our schools and probably some cases where, as you indicated, it was overused. So safe to assume that's probably why we don't do that anymore. Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably quite a few reasons that we don't do that. Most of all, I think a lot of teachers would be like, you want me to what? <laughs> or administrators, you know, that's just not something they want to get involved in. But I will say that I think that a lot of times we all need to be concerned about it. We all have been parents who, you know, if you've been a parent, or you've been in a caretaker situation with a child where you're frustrated or you're angry with the child. And, you know, a lot of times, unfortunately, that's where child abuse happens. One of the most common, in fact, the number one reason, quote unquote, you know, not that it's excusable, but the number one reason for child abuse that we see in young children is crying. And it is just because people are so frustrated and so angry. And so I think that's the risk that you run with discipline is that we want to say that we do it with a cool head and that we know exactly what proportional response we should have in these situations. But we're all human beings and there's anger involved and frustration and especially parents with young children maybe running on very little sleep. And so before we make a decision to, you know, to be that kind of inflictor of discipline on a child in a physical way, realize we should all recognize that we're running a risk there of opening up something that we lose control of. And unfortunately, that is what happens in a lot of child abuse situations. They start out as quote unquote discipline in the sense of you did something bad. Somebody just took it way, way, way too far. And unfortunately, that is where a lot of kids get seriously injured or killed. And so we want to kind of, we, we don't want to throw up our hands and say it's discipline because the next time it's quote unquote discipline, it couldn't end up being a really very serious, dangerous situation for the child. And so, yeah, I think things have changed a lot. And it's one of those things that we sort of evolve both in the school system and as parents. And so North Carolina has kept that door open, but we've gotten a little bit clearer about how easily it can turn into something inappropriate. 
Well, obviously, I got a little wide in the turns with my questioning. I'll see if I can kind of bring us back on task (laughs) when we talk about law enforcement and its reaction to the whole child abuse scenario. So very specifically, how can an officer best assist a child who may have been abused or neglected? So the first thing that officers can do is just to be present and believe the child. It's actually really unusual for children to lie about abuse. And so one thing that we want to make sure is that we are giving children the benefit of the doubt and not just assuming because they're a child that they can't be telling the truth and take the story of the adult over the child. That's not to say that children never lie. Of course they do. But lying about abuse is actually much more rare than we think. And so we want to make sure that we are listening to what a child is trying to tell us. It's also kind of rare that they come right out and say exactly what has happened to them. A lot of times they'll be sort of hinting about it and they will be hoping that the adult that they're speaking to kind of gets picks up what they're putting down, you know, gets what they're saying without them having to come out and say it. Eventually, at some point, someone will go through a forensic interview with that child, hopefully, and they will have a chance to bring out the full story. But when we're talking about patrol officers, when we're talking about the initial phases of an investigation, we just want to make sure that children feel like they can talk and that they're being listened to. Because a lot of times children, especially that are in homes where there may be abuse going on um, or who may have abuse going on in their life in some other context with a coach or uh, somebody like that, you know, they they feel like they haven't been listened to. But maybe the only person that's been listening to them is, is their abuser. A lot of times, especially with these outside abusers, these coaches or teachers or somebody like that. They've been involved in grooming the child for a long period of time. And so grooming happens basically when they're trying to make themselves out to be that child's confidant. You know, I'm your buddy. I'm your friend. I'll listen to you. I know your parents are mean and they don't let you do X, Y, and Z. I'll let you do that. And so a lot of times that's the interaction that these children have had with adults is either positive but abusive in that sort of grooming scenario or all negative where they're never listened to. And so we want to make sure that when we're interacting with a child who may be the victim of abuse or neglect that we are listening and that we make sure that they're aware, even if they're not ready to talk now, that there are people who will listen when they are ready, when they are comfortable, and that we can make sure that they're safe if you know they reach out to those resources, that there are resources for them. And so that's really an important thing because a lot of times it takes a while for a child to feel comfortable, uh, especially when it comes to sexual abuse. It takes a long time for them to feel comfortable talking about what happened to them. I mean, we're talking about things that adults don't feel comfortable talking about. And we're asking these kids to feel comfortable talking about them with grownups. That's just a very hard scenario. But luckily, we have a lot of professionals out there, therapists, forensic interviewers, folks like that who are very good at this and know just how to talk to these kids. But we've got to get them there first. That's the important thing for law enforcement. Yeah. And you bring a very important point up about children who sometimes lie. And I know those interviews, difficult for adults as they may be, very stressful for a child as well. And depending upon where the interview takes place, a lot of times I I think may determine the outcome. So if the officer asks the child a question before he or she has an opportunity to answer, there may be a child there, I mean, a, a parent there who's chiming in, oh, she's a little liar. He's a little liar. He's mm-hmm. not going to tell you the truth. So, and then sometimes legitimately. Parents live with their children for the most part, 100% of the time, and 
they do know their habits. So they do know that when they're about to be in trouble, that they might embellish the truth just a little bit. And here's a law enforcement guy who shows up at somebody's door for the very first time, has never met anybody on the other side of that door. And he or she is being asked to try and determine what is truth and what is not got to be very difficult for street officers. Incredibly difficult. I mean, it's an, it's difficult for anybody. It's something that everybody struggles with because it is a lot of times, I hate the phrase he said, she said, but a lot of times it is one side versus the other, one narrative versus the other. And so that's why we have these all of these investigative tools that we have now and these folks that are specially trained. And that's one of the great things, you know, one of the things that we got out of the whole satanic panic kind of thing, all of these things that went on decades ago, was that unfortunately there were situations where children lied. But what we found out is that they almost exclusively lied at the behest of someone else. They were fed information and they just were trying to please the grownups and tell them what they thought they wanted to hear, tell them what they, you know, had been kind of fed to them. And so one of the great things that we have now is that we have these forensic interviewers. They go through training. The radar model is the main model that we use here in North Carolina. And they go through the radar model. They're trained in how not to ask the suggestive questions. They're trained in how to speak with children and just get them to talk and give their narrative about what happened. They're trained to spot indications that there may be more the child wants to say or, you know, something like that. And so all of those things, the radar model, forensic interviewing, that sort of thing, those have all come out of our learning about how children are and are not lying <laughs> and how children are and are not having information suggested to them. And so it's really important that we take advantage of those tools instead of just saying, well, sometimes kids are liars. We need to learn and take those steps to educate ourselves and how to speak with them so that we can get the truth. And if we aren't those people, if we haven't been through that training, then getting them to people who have and can who can suss that out as a part of the investigation. So, yeah, it's really hard on the scene in that moment to think like, OK, this person's telling the truth and this person's lying. Unfortunately, that's what law enforcement, you know, in these these patrol and these calls for service situations have to do all the time. And so sometimes we have to rely on our best instincts, but we just want to make sure that we're not automatically discounting people because they're children and automatically believing adults because they're adults. Because we know for sure that there are lots of situations where it's the adult that's a liar and it's the kid who's telling the truth. And we want to make sure that we're starting them out on equal footing when we make those assessments at the very least. Well, you flipped on a switch that I was unfamiliar with. Well, well, I was familiar with it, but from a different aspect, because I'm sure it has nothing to do with it. At one time, I was a radar instructor, but it had something <laughs> to do with speed measuring. So you you brought up that acronym. Can you, and, and you touched on it just a little bit, can you go a little bit more in depth about that radar model? Yeah, it's awesome, actually. I'm really excited to talk about it just because we have this great resource in North Carolina. So we have Dr. Mark Everson, who is at UNC, and he and two other folks, Scott Rodriguez and Scott Snyder, one of whom is a former law enforcement officer and one of whom works at Duke at their child psychology group there. And so those three developed this model based on the national model for forensic interviewing of children. And it's basically just a way of speaking with children. And they pulled in all their collective knowledge on how children who have been abused 
need to speak about things and how we can put them in a comfortable environment, how we can speak to them in a way that they understand for their age level, how we can make sure that we are not suggesting anything, but that we are encouraging them to inform us and give us a story about what happened to them, how we can kind of assess what may be going on with them and even their credibility as a part of that process. We actually do this program a lot at our building at the Conference of Disc Attorneys at the Administrative Office of the Courts building in Raleigh. And they come and they give several classes every year. It's a week-long class. And they basically teach law enforcement and nurses and other folks who are going to be doing these interviews how to speak to children. They teach them about the psychology behind it. They teach them about making sure that they ask the right kinds of open-ended questions that encourage them to speak about what happened to them to make sure that they are in a child-friendly environment environment when that's happening. So it's really great. And they actually also have a program called First Call, which is intended just for first responders. So it's kind of like a shorthand version. You know, they realize that these are not going to be the people who are doing a full interview of a child, but they are people who are going to be responding and maybe seeing a child that's possibly the victim of abuse and neglect on the scene in a first responder scenario. And so they also have a, a class that does that. So I think those are really great opportunities for officers to learn more because, again, they're things that we have learned about from these bad experiences, from these myths, from these situations that kind of invaded our brain years and years ago and just didn't let go. And this is basically teaching us on an evidence-based model how to speak to children to get truth out of them and to get full stories out of them so that we're doing justice for everybody involved. And so people that are interested in that can go to radarmodels.com. And that's radar just like the speed measuring instrument, except it's not. It's R-A-D-A-R models.com and they can find out about upcoming classes for the full radar program or the first call program. Uh, again, we're really lucky to have these resident experts that give that class. The teachers are Dr. Everson and Scott Rodriguez and Scott Snyder. And they're just a wonderful resource for us to have here in North Carolina. And so we happily host them. I've been through the class myself. A lot of prosecutors go through it just to understand a little bit more about these kids and these interviews that we're seeing come up in evidence. Well, and I think what it does is once again reinforce the number of resources that are available to law enforcement in North Carolina. And this is just kind of like one more tool to put on the tool belt. Absolutely. That's what we try to do is provide tools for the tool belt. Well, our time is just about up, Whitney. And again, I want to thank you so much for all of the information that, that you've shared with our listeners on these first three podcasts. But I think I would be remiss if I didn't go to this last question, it seems like we've we've talked about the backside of child abuse and neglect and maltreatment and whatever moniker you want to put on it. And everything we've talked about is after the fact. So let me just ask this one question for law enforcement guys and gals who are out there knocking on doors, responding to calls for service. Is there anything that law enforcement can do to prevent child abuse? Well, one thing that we can all do is support the mental health of the people in our community. The The statistics are really clear that, uh, unfortunately, ma the majority of abusers 
do have some sort of mental health issue. They may have abuse in their past and have never gotten any sort of treatment for that, the impact of that, the trauma of that. You know, there's a lot of other factors that play into it, poverty and a lack of resources and things like that. And so anything that you can do to help support the people in your community, the people who may be struggling, whether it's with addiction or mental health or a combination of that, those are the sorts of things that can really help prevent child abuse and also getting involved in activities that keep kids busy after school. Unfortunately, when kids go home and they have nothing to do, they can be in a situation where they can be in danger, whether that be abuse or whether that be having an accident, doing something dangerous, whatever it may be, getting involved in drugs. So anything like the Boys and Girls Club or things like that that you can be involved in and and devote your time, which I know we all have tons of free time, but anything like that that you can do to help in your community is an important part of preventing child abuse. And then again, Getting in touch with the resources in your community, the child advocacy centers, getting training, getting talking to your loved ones and your family members about what you know about red flags for child abuse, what you know about child abuse reporting. I mean, again, I know it's not something that we always want to bring home. It's not a fun topic, but you never know when that could save a life or maybe your family member takes a look at the kid next door next time. And because of what you told them, they're able to spot some signs of child abuse or a child that might be in danger or just be a support system for a child who may not have a great family situation. Maybe they're not abused in any sort of physical way, but maybe they're just not in a great situation. And so things that we can do to support families and support kids in any way are always going to be things that help prevent child abuse because they provide that support system for people who need it, you know, and instead of being in an abusive situation. Well, again, great information. And it just spurred a memory in, in my mind that law enforcement guys need to be on the lookout for, you know, when you, you go to a call for service, And if you've had blue lights on, they're like magnets for people to Mm. come out of their houses or apartments or wherever it is that they're living. And I remember being at a call for service and looking over and there's two little guys Mm -hmm. and probably six, seven years old. And it's 11, 1130 at night. And, you know, once we handled the call for service, I kind of took them by the hand and said, let's go talk to whoever it is that is keeping you. And it turned out it was just like you described, uh, a mom who was working second shift, she had left her sister there. The sister got really engrossed in watching some exciting television show. And these two guys decided it was a good idea to wander outside of the house. So just a, a probably 30 to 45 second interaction with that lady, just to say, you know, these kids are inquisitive. They're going to do some things. They're going to test you. You need to just pay a little bit more attention. Just small things like that can make a huge difference. It really can. I think a lot of people, you know, we get so busy just doing our tasks at our job, but it is that sort of side effort that we make that can sometimes make all the difference. And taking that extra time, you know, there are a lot of things that we can't control in this world, even if we want to, even if we're in the business of trying to make a difference and and get justice. But there are some things we can actually do some good in. And a lot of times that's with kids and just taking some extra time out of our day and checking on something or making a little bit of an extra effort just to make a connection. And also we want to make sure that kids have a positive experience with law enforcement so that if they do ever need help, they feel comfortable going to that law enforcement an officer and speaking up. We're actually doing some training and in-service next year. We'll be creating a one-page resource for law enforcement 
that hopefully they can keep in their cars or keep on their uh, in-car computers that will have all their contact information for the local CACs, that will have some tips and red flags to watch out for and things like that as well. So we're trying to make sure that we make it as easy as possible for law enforcement to reach out to those resources so we can make that difference. Yeah, and that's awesome. Whitney, this concludes our podcast series on April being Child Advocacy Month. You have shared so much valuable information on the entire aspect of child abuse and neglect and and maltreatment. We just can't thank you enough. And again, if you kind of want to give your contact information and the best place for folks to be able to contact you, we'll try to put it in our show notes as well. But one last opportunity to, to say thank you and for you to give a hapless commercial on behalf of the North Carolina Conference of District Attorneys, which we have found out is an extremely valuable resource to North Carolina. Well, I'm, I've been really happy to be here and thanks for giving me the opportunity. We do want to provide resources and assistance for everybody out there who may need it. So my name is Whitney Bellich and you can reach me at my email, which is whitney.h.bellich, B-E-L-I-C-H at nccourts.org. And I think that'll be in the show notes as well. And if you are interested in joining the North Carolina Child Abuse Listserv that I mentioned uh, on the first podcast, that's a great way to sort of connect with other folks that are working on this, learn about trainings that are coming up, discuss new cases that may impact how you investigate your cases. Or if you just want to shoot me an email with a question, I'm always happy to help in whatever way I can. Same with all my other coworkers at the Conference of Disc Attorneys. We are here to support you, to support the ADAs that work with you. And so anything that we can do to assist you, if you have a multidisciplinary team that works in child abuse cases, we regularly work with those. And so I'm always happy to do that. And so are my coworkers. And so you can check out the Conference of Disc Attorneys website. Just Google North Carolina Conference of Disc Attorneys. That's probably the easiest way to do it. And all of our contact information is on there as well as some other resources. Well, this concludes our series of podcasts spotlighting Child Advocacy Month during April. Our goal here was to help you be part of the solution concerning child maltreatment. The North Carolina Justice Academy offers multiple training opportunities throughout the year. Also, a good Google search of child abuse resources in North Carolina will produce websites for agencies dedicated to this cause. My thanks once again to Whitney Bellich who is the Child Abuse Resource Prosecutor with the North Carolina Conference of District Attorneys. And until our next episode of NCJA 1014, stay safe. NCJA 1014.